Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, nurse practitioner, Dr. Christina Swiner, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Heidi Burns, and social worker, Saima Khan. This week, we are joined by Nicole Figueroa to discuss stigma and mental health. Nicole Figueroa, MSN, RN, AHN-BC, HWNC-BC, is a nurse leader for well-being at Michigan Medicine Health System. Nicole received her BSN from the University of Detroit Mercy and received her Master in Science of Nursing with a concentration in Advanced Holistic Nursing from Florida Atlantic University. Previous to her starting her role as nurse leader for well-being, her career was spent as a child and psychiatric nurse and the clinical director of the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Unit at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital. Her work has included education nurses around clinical presence and reflective practice, particularly with patients and families who are struggling emotionally during their hospitalizations. She is passionate about creating system-wide approaches that support bold, inclusive work environments, where people from all backgrounds feel welcome, along with prioritizing and reducing stigma around mental health needs for nurses. Nicole believes through educating nurses on how to support themselves around emotional parts of their work, we can create a health system where healthcare providers can flourish and subsequently our patients and families can truly heal. None of the speakers here today have any conflicts of interest or financial disclosures. Thank you for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me today. Nicole, this is a very broad and general topic, but what is stigma in mental health? You know, I think that's a very complicated question, but one that I think is so important to talk about. I think when we think about stigma and mental health, I really go back to kind of how we culturally see people who struggle emotionally in general. And, you know, I think our dominant culture in America is one that everyone feels like they have to be perfect. Everyone feels like they cannot maybe show emotion. And so at times that leads people to think that if they are struggling, that they have to hide that. And I think that feeds then mental health stigma that people don't feel safe being honest with how they're feeling. They may not even feel safe kind of sharing things that may feel strange. And I think particularly of our, our folks who struggle with thought disorders or other things that maybe be portrayed in our media and in our social context in which maybe get demonized or are looked at in like a fantastical way. And so I think there's so many drivers to stigma. And I think that one of the things that's really important for us to talk about is, is that stigma? Where does it come from? But it comes so from so many multifaceted places and probably came from many generations of ways that we think people understand their kind of mental capacities and understandings. And yeah. Thanks so much for starting us off kind of with that really broad reflection on how is stigma and where maybe it came from. I think that it's important to recognize that there's stigma right within, you know, communities about mental health, seeking mental health treatment. Um, There's stigma for people who have mental illness um, and how they can seek care and how they're perceived within their communities. Um, So it's a really deep topic. You know, one question that, you know, we thought was important to ask is how are individuals with mental illness a vulnerable population? You know, I think that's probably, that's one of the most powerful questions to ask is, you know, how how are patients' populations or any population with mental health needs uh, vulnerable? And I always reflect back that, you know, there are multiple things that may make the mental health needs uh, or mental health, mental illness a vulnerable population. For me, I think about the fact that we don't have really fair and equitable treatments for people who have mental mental health needs or mental illness. And I think through that process, we create more vulnerability. And so one thing I think about is my background is child and adolescent psych. And 
um, finding a child and adolescent psych practitioner is really hard. If you don't live in maybe more urban areas, uh, you may have to drive hundreds of miles to get treatment. And so then putting people who are already at risk and already vulnerable um, at even higher risk because we just don't have the equitable treatment care or care uh, in general. And so one thing that I think particularly around kind of vulnerability is if we think about perhaps cardiovascular health, people oftentimes can find access to that. And so we may have somebody who has a cardiovascular risk, and so therefore they're able to get the treatment that they need. Uh, when you have a mental health need or a mental health mental illness, you may not be able to find a practitioner who you can care for you, therefore putting you into more vulnerable states. And then also there's the kind of stigma in which people who may have mental health needs um, may then further be vulnerable, vulnerable at getting a job or in school and getting the needs that they, they have. Um, and so it just kind of layers on itself over and over again. Nicole, you kind of reflected a little bit on this in your previous response, but how does mental health stigma impact different communities and access to that care? I think our health systems in general um, have equity issues. Then when you get to kind of mental health care, there is also equity issues in general. And, you know, I think different communities, based on their kind of mental frame of how do they see and perceive mental illness, so you may have a cultural context in which people may have an understanding of mental illness around maybe um, still believing that people may be bad, and that's the reason why they have depression or anxiety. And so you have that kind of piece that plays into it, so people may not be able to get access. And then secondarily, if we look at communities that don't have the practitioners that they, they need, we have heightened uh, access issues. Uh, again, thinking about our, you know, particularly in our child and adolescent uh, areas, we may have a kid who, I remember on the unit, uh, we would have kids who would come from 200, 300 miles away to get access to treatment. And some of the children maybe would have really done well with early intervention, but they're now 15, 16 years old, and they never had um, any sort of intervention. And so you think about subpopulations of people and, and where they live and just knowing that sometimes their zip code, particularly with mental health, their zip code really determines their health outcomes, which is sad, but also why, you know, I think all of us are in this room and talking about uh, why it's so important to, to think about mental health first and foremost. And I think probably something sort of worth mentioning in a bigger picture look at stigma is that it, it can be really culturally bound and culture can mean lots of different things. It can you know, literally mean different places in the world have different belief systems about mental health, but also, you know, even within a local community, you know, there are different subgroups of people um, who all may think differently about mental health and access to mental health, whether that's, you know, a religion or um, a certain ethnic group. And sort of going along with, you know, how does that stigma impact a community? You know, if, if you're in a particular community or culture that that does have a very strong stigma against, you know, the treatment or even just the even belief, you know, maybe perhaps they believe that psychosis is actually, you know, related to witchcraft or something like that. You know, there are all of these culturally bound issues with stigma where people are even less likely to seek care and have access to care. So it really can be kind of, you know, globally a problem related to access, but even within like smaller and smaller and smaller subgroups, you're having lots of issues with just sometimes even the basic things of speaking about yeah. a mental health problem is not allowed in a certain context. So there's just a lot of, yeah, a lot of complexity to, to stigma. 
How about bias? You know, kind of there are different subgroups that have certain feelings about mental illness. And then if you think about the people who are trying to come in and get treatment or care for mental health problems, what kind of bias might they encounter? How does that impact their ability to get care? You know, I think as somebody who's worked in this academic health center for a long time, I I think that's one of the things that we have to be really mindful in in building cultures that are open to seeing I would say healthcare as a mind body spirit intervention and one thing that I I see often is that it takes so much for somebody to want to engage in treatment right so it takes so much for somebody to say my child needs help so I'm going to bring them to let's say even to the hospital and they need help and so what they hope for is that when they enter into our health system that they have people who are well very knowledgeable about mental health needs or what their child may need. And what often happens is that our healthcare providers don't have the education they need or they themselves have their own biases. And to me, it's one of the things that we need to work on the hardest in our healthcare industry is getting people who work outside of behavioral health the understanding of the impacts of what mental illness or mental well-being is around chronically ill kids and and adults. And that's what we usually see in the health system. And so for me, I think being aware of your own biases, you know, like you just said, um, we all come from cultures who have understandings of mental illness, and we all have our stuff that we think about it. You know, we may have grown up in a family that did not believe that mental illness exist, existed. And if we didn't do our own work and then we become a healthcare provider, we may put that bias on the patient that we see. And a lot of times it's because we don't understand what's happening in front of us. And I think that what I see in the bias in the healthcare industry is that we see things that don't make sense and then we make judgments. And then what happens is the patients and families don't get what they need. So we may have a child who's struggling with psychosis. We don't understand psychosis, so we may think that somebody is uh, embellishing what they're experiencing versus kind of sitting with somebody who is having experience and honoring what their truth is. And so for me, bias is everywhere, and we all have our own biases, but really doing our own work around kind of what do I know about mental illness? What are my own thought processes about it? So that we don't harm the people who have worked so hard to get to our health system because it takes so much to get to the point where you might say, I need help. And what they need is somebody to really not reinforce any bias and make them feel like we're not here to help. And I think that's so much what people experience when they come outside of behavioral health. And we're really lucky here to have really great practitioners and and really great kind of services for mental health. So people come to us expecting us to to not have those bias. So biases. So to me, I think it's doing our own internal work and assuring that we're not placing that on our patients and families who are coming to us who have already faced so much stigma and so much bias to even be kind of courageous enough to reach out for help because we know that the vast majority of people don't get into treatment. And so then the people who hit our doors actually want to be in treatment. And Nicole, just to kind of bounce off of that, I think you said something really important is that these patients and families are courageous. And I don't know how many times I've been in with families who brought their kid in and they're like, I don't know if this is the right thing. And me just turning around saying, thank you. This is what they needed. And we're here to support you. And just honoring that bravery that they have presented with to Mm -hmm. seek out that treatment, even though treatment may be scary for them. Yeah. Well, and so many times treatment 
is restrictive and it's scary to think about what may be the next step. And so our role as healthcare providers is to ease that anxiety and again, honor really the bravery of coming in and and getting help, which is really, really quite hard sometimes. You know, I think we know that even in medical settings, there's a lot of stigma and bias for marginalized communities. And so in particular, I think when we talk about mental health, we also want to acknowledge the experience, you know, of you know, black, indigenous, uh, people of color, when they are seeking mental health care, that oftentimes, you know, there's stigma within their communities, there's stigma and bias that they experience when they come into the hospital related to their mental health needs, they may be miscategorized. So, you know, as healthcare providers, we really need to be aware of that experience and mindful about it. And I really appreciate the reflection of doing our own work and kind of recognizing maybe, you know, the community that we grow up in, the culture that we grow up in, and how we conceptualize mental health, and how can we kind of take a step back and ensure that we are looking at the patient from a holistic perspective and really, you know, honoring both their medical and their psychiatric needs when we develop a care plan. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the goals of this podcast is really to to talk about that issue that you raised about, you know, getting a more broad education and exposure to behavioral health in order to be able to be that welcoming place for people to land. Um, like you said, it's it's difficult to get through all of the barriers that you have to get through to get mental health care. And, you know, a lot of us took oaths and other things to work in this setting where we try to have compassion and non-judgmental, you know, approaches. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, sometimes when you walk into a room and there's somebody who's acting in a very surprising way or a very confusing way, you know, it takes a lot to sort of keep that oath and think about sort of approaching that person in a non-judgmental manner, um, particularly because, you know, as we kind of have seen by working in behavioral health, there is a lot of variations of normal and you know, normality and abnormality. And, you know, no two patients are alike. Um, and so it, it takes a lot of work on yourself in order to be able to kind of truly be an accepting human um, when it comes to being a provider. I think that one of the best skills that we can grow as healthcare providers is like being curious versus kind of being judgmental. And I think where I notice a bias comes in is we create a snap judgment, which is bias, right? We all have our own implicit bias. But the moment we can kind of catch ourselves creating a storyline or creating a judgment, can we be curious about what's happening for that person? Even if we think you know, even if we have a judgment, like if we can just put our kind of curiosity first and foremost, like being compassionate and being curious, can we just offer that to everyone who enters in our doors, particularly people who maybe cope in ways that we don't find normative, right? But normative is so subjective. And so just be curious and compassionate. Thanks for that reflection, Nicole. You've already touched on this a little bit, but any other thoughts on how medical professionals can normalize and support individuals with mental health needs in medical settings? You know, I think that the more we have open discussions, so I think that just like with bias, right, when we're talking about bias, it's really important to have safe spaces. And so, you know, listening to podcasts like this, but also having discussions with maybe behavioral health providers around what you're seeing. Like, I just don't understand what's happening here. Can you help me understand this? You know, and also I always say like getting involved with maybe community engagement. So like NAMI or any peer support groups in which you can see people 
who are in a different state. Maybe they're not in a crisis state and you can see people living their life flourishing in a different, in a different standpoint. You know, I think one of our, if I could say one of our kind of most powerful things that we should do as healthcare providers is ensure that all of us kind of do our due diligence in understanding behavioral health. Because one thing we can't detach is our brain and we all cope with things differently. And so for me, it's, you know, as we look at more integration from behavioral health into kind of medical care, it kind of bleeds over. And so for me, it's one of the most powerful things we need to do. And somewhat, sometimes it's just sitting down and trying to get some, to know somebody on a, on a different level outside of the hospital and maybe getting involved in the community a little bit more. Nicole, you kind of alluded to this about this, you know, almost marriage of physical and mental health that has been occurring um, over the last several years, mm-hmm. decade or so. Can you speak a little bit to how mental health and stigma, um, how that discussion has changed over time? Yeah. You know, I think <clears throat> I reflect back. I started here at the at the university in 2008. And, um, you know, I think at that point in time, psych was very separate. It was seen as its own actually psych hospital. And um, as time has evolved, we have had more and more conversations around patients with behavioral needs are everywhere and it's everyone's responsibility. And so I've seen this evolving trend. My experience is going from the that's a patient that that's a behavioral health patient. That that is still true. At times we hear people say that to more or less curiosity. And I think it's that's how I've seen things evolve is that people are um, outside of behavioral health are starting to see that, oh, I need to understand the full picture of the patient. I need to understand maybe what is complicating their their the picture for them getting better on the physical side of things. So how are they coping with this? And I think just in general, as we've kind of started talking more about kind of mind, body, spirit care, just nationally and complementary care. And I think that people just are more open to it. And I think also there's been a lot of great work from, you know, organizations like NAMI and a lot of advocacy even in our health system to start looking at um, that it can't be separate, that we have to see things together and that it's everyone's responsibility to kind of get some education around this and also look at how we collaborate much better, which uh, at times, um, honestly, we kind of were two separate worlds. Behavioral health, we did our stuff. Medicine did their stuff. And I think now we are trying to be much more collaborative. I think um, on a national level too, you know, recognizing I think that so much in the past, our focus and our research on mental illness really focused on non-diverse populations, oftentimes just white men. Mm -hmm. And I think there's been a significant change too within the healthcare discourse, you know, nationally and within like the NIMH, the National mm-hmm. Institutes of Mental Health around, you know, including special populations mm-hmm. within research to kind of recognize that the medications, the therapies that we provide may not be meeting the needs. And I think in particular, recognizing that we've seen like a rise in suicides among black youth, you know, tells us that we really need to be more in- integrative and collaborative when it comes to identifying solutions for these communities. Yeah, I think that's so true. And, you know, one thing I don't think we touched on as well is, you know, kind of the intersectionality when we have BIPOC youth and then BIPOC youth who also identify as LGBTQ and the increased risk of suicidality and and also not engagement in any sort of health care, uh, particularly in mental health care. Um, and I think that that's been also beautiful as well to see that kind of looking at intersectionality, looking at how 
like you said, Saima, a lot of our interventions really looked at upper middle class white men <clears throat> and what worked for them and, and kids, you know, don't even worry about kids. And so I think that it's been beautiful to see those uh, identification of how we need to do b- better and particularly with our diverse populations and our minoritized p- populations. You mentioned the resource NAMI a couple of times, and I'm wondering if you could explain that or where more information could be found. Yes, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. They have both national and local chapters. Um, the thing I love about NAMI is that they have a lot of peer support specialists, which I found so amazing as somebody who worked in acute care hospitals for my entire career. Oftentimes, I would only see people at um, their acute phase of their illness, and being around peer support specialists and seeing people who have struggled with mental illness and maybe really kind of severely impacted and then seeing them in their lives as professors, as business owners, as a nurse, as a physician um, has been really, is really cool and and something to get involved in. And also they have, you know, they help with advocacy, uh, both at the local, state and national level. Um, And it's a great community to get involved in. I think if you're interested in learning more, they have a lot of parent-to-parent groups where they have parents kind of running groups for each other. So a lot of great resources just to kind of start looking at and exploring if you're interested in knowing more information. Sounds like a great spot to start for that journey of curiosity. Yes, curiosity. Yeah, I think it's a great tool for mental health providers, for uh, medical providers, for families, for patients themselves. They really kind of, you know, try and provide education, support, and resources to, you know, those with mental illness, those that want to help support. And I agree that that I think in this acute care setting, we often see um, individuals who are really on that high end of needing support that are likely needing hospitalization. And it can be really challenging, um, but recognizing that people with mental illness live full lives. Um, they can you know, thrive, they can grow, they can give to the community. And so I think NAMI really provides that space to kind of see that reflection versus kind of you know feeling really limited in our scope and understanding of mental health. You know, on the journey of education of yourself and others is also there are, you know, great memoirs of people who have struggled with their own mental illness. I think of like there's a great a memoir called Brain on Fire. I, I think that that is one of the most powerful things to to decrease stigma is to understand that what we see oftentimes portrayed in movies and in media is not reality and that people who have mental illness flourish. And many of us have had our own struggles and strategies that we've all all dealt with. So I think the other well-known memoir from a professor is Kay Jamison, and she wrote An Unquiet Mind, a memoir of mood and madness. Yes, that's a great book. I think what I really like about this discussion is that these people and people in general all have mental health struggles, no matter what walk of life, what profession, what gender, what identity, none of that really matters. Mm-hmm. They can all suffer in one way or the other and seek, need help in different ways mm-hmm. and just being open and curious. Yeah. Before we wrap up today, are there any other reflections that anyone would like to add? I think I'm definitely walking away from this discussion, this discussion, you know, in terms of being curious, um, because I think it's really important for us to be aware of our own bias and the way that we approach situations. Um, there's so much data that tells us there is bias within medical care, within mental health care, you know, in particular, we know that black 
patients are more likely to be restrained in emergency rooms than white patients. We know that they're more likely to be prescribed antipsychotics um, for their symptoms versus being diagnosed with depression. We know that black preschoolers are more likely to be suspended to be given diagnoses of oppositional defiant disorder, you know, without acknowledgement of trauma, without acknowledgement of other, you know, maybe psychosocial things that are going on than their white peers. So we know there's a lot of stigma and bias. And so when people come to healthcare, I think it's really important for us to be able to acknowledge that they've ex- had those experiences before they walked in our doors. And what can we do to help them feel supported and welcomed and that we're acknowledging those experiences and we're doing our best to unpack whatever experiences we've had um, to help them feel cared for and to hopefully be able to help them on this journey of recovery. There are actually a lot of implicit bias trainings available now. This is something that is becoming more and more widespread. Um, So checking out even within the university that you're affiliated with or your licensing regulator um, or any provider or any uh, institutions that provide continuing medical education credits of any kind. There are a lot of trainings that are out there right now that sort of, and even there's some, you know, online quizzes of taking a look and seeing if you can identify some implicit bias that you might hold. So it's, it's a, it's a good journey, like I said before, kind of to help you with your own knowledge of, of what your biases might be. And then, you know, what that might mean if you are coming into contact with people in a healthcare setting. We know this is a really important conversation to just, you know, as Dr. Burns shared, um, that there's a lot of online tests to be able to take. But we also know that the state, you know, has required it for all healthcare professionals to take implicit bias training. And part of that, I think, is recognizing that the health disparities that we see are really driven by bias and stigma. And so that we need to be more mindful about them in healthcare settings. So um, there's resources through the University of Michigan that people can access. You know, the Harvard IAT implicit um, bias test is available. Um, so I think continuing on that journey and learning. And I think remembering that you you need to be curious, but we all walk into situations and don't realize that we hold a certain bias and we learn every time we see patients and just being able to recognize in those moments that, oh, hold on, I need to rewind. I need to look at this. Why am I treating a patient this way? What can I do to rectify the situation? And sometimes it can be shocking and hard work, and it's good to remember just sort of from a neurobiological standpoint. Our minds are really, you know, conditioned to see patterns and to put patterns in place so that, you know, it can expect what's coming and sort of prepare for that. And so sometimes, you know, you can get into that rhythm of of just constantly placing your own patterns on other people. And this is something that can happen, um, you know, unconsciously almost. Um, And so it can be quite shocking sometimes to go through that process of learning about your own implicit biases. But I think there's definitely a, a strong and growing belief that doing so will provide better care for your patients. One thing I reflect on, particularly when we think about pattern responses, and when we think about particularly Um, maybe behavioral responses. We know that when we're scared, that we lean on our biases even more. And at times when people are struggling with being hospitalized or struggling with being in the ED, they may behave in ways that look escalated. And I think about leaning on, you know, training around de-escalation, training around things that kind of help us understand how how do we meet people who are agitated? Because the more we can lean on some training that we know what is the best practices to approach people who are dysregulated. That helps us kind of re, 
override, am I afraid of this person because of the way they look or how they're, the language they're using? And if we lean on some of our, like implicit bias helps us with kind of understanding our own biases. And then can we lean on other trainings that teach us when I see someone who's dysregulated, this is a skill I use and I use a skill with anybody and it works with everyone. And so if I'm feeling afraid of somebody by the way they look, and this is just kind of something I'm working on, that we can use those skills to kind of override it so that everyone gets equitable care. And so I think that that's something that's really powerful also thinking about how do we meet dysregulation with um, with training as well. And there are some other uh, episodes of our podcast that do focus in on coping skills that you might be able to use, as well as aggression and agitation and how to approach that. Well, thank you for joining us today. We truly appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you to everybody who tuned in this week. Nurses, social workers, and physicians can claim CMEs and CEs at uofmhealth.org slash breaking down mental health. You are able to do this anytime within three years of the initial air date. We hope that you will join us next time.